Shabbat Shalom and greetings to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. Give me a thumbs up if you've got good audio and good video in the chat. And subscribe to the ministry channel. Give us some thumbs up. And we are in Isaiah, the fifth Hebrew gospel, and we are in chapter 40 today. Let me come over here in the chat and check that we've got good sound and good audio. Can somebody let me know so then I know that it's okay to proceed. In the meantime, please consider donating to Torah to the Tribes. And those of you that do, thank you so, so very much for your support, enabling us to continue to minister to the 12 tribes all over the nations. And remember, we're backing it up over there on Odyssey. So very thankful to um, be able to be doing that. And we'll have the notes up on the website later on this evening. And also there is the new calendar that's downloadable, showing you when all the Moedim, the feasts and festivals are for this year. So looking like we've got good sound, looking like we are gonna go over to Nachamu, Nachamu, Isaiah chapter 40. It's one of my favorite chapters. One of my favorite chapters, comfort ye, comfort ye. Yahuwah calling out to his heavenly counsel to comfort his people. It's a clarion call to comfort. It's divine consolation. And it's directed in the text towards Jerusalem. And then, of course, we know on this side of prophecy, being believers in Yahushua, its fulfillment throughout the Brit Hadashah, specifically with Yochanan HaMatbil, John the Immerser, the voice in the wilderness. And it's heralding it, its message of redemption, preparing the way, preparing the way for Yahweh. And it's the clarion call for all of us in our lives to prepare our hearts, to prepare our minds, and to prepare our bodies, this temple, for Yahweh's return. It's significant, it's significant, excuse me, and signifies, of course, the end of the exile. There is going to be, and I believe it's going to be in our lifetime, a greater exodus, as Jeremiah the prophet tells us, a exodus from the nations that will be even bigger than the first exodus. And there is going to be our return to the promised, promised land. That is the greater exodus, and it's going to happen through the outstretched hand of Yahushua HaMashiach. I remember when I was first a believer, and a, my pastor said to me, you know, every man of Yah goes through a wilderness experience. And I believe every one of us that is devoutly, sincere, sincerely following Yahushua, we will all have to go through a wilderness experience at times. There's hills and there's valleys of life. But we will be tried and we will be tested. And that is the wilderness. 
And there's going to be a period of trial and testing in your life and in my life. What will we do in those times? Isaiah's voice emerges in the barrenness of the wilderness of our lives, in the barrenness of the exile, because it is a voice that brings good tidings, the Besorah, the good news of Nachamu, comfort, comfort ye my people. But Isaiah is really looking beyond just the literal to the spiritual condition, the desolation within human hearts, the hopelessness within human hearts. And we live in a time of chaos. We live in a time of grave hopelessness and a time of grave desolation within the hearts of men and within the hearts of women. So this chapter, it's an inspiration to us to push through these difficult times because they will come to an end. It's a prophetic invitation to find solace in spiritual deserts where divine comfort will await us. That, in essence, opens up this wonderful, wonderful chapter. If you look at the third verse, it's very interesting. In the Hebrew, one would read it, Kol kor bamibar panu derech Yahuwah yerashru aravu le'elochenu. And right within this text, the letters kof and the letters resh, they represent the voice, kol, kol, the voice. And then we come across these other Hebrew letters. We've got the pay in panu, prepare, prepare. And it resembles the pay, what? An open mouth. What is the emphasis? Active engagement. Active engagement with Yahuwah. Active engagement with the divine. Now the letters Dalet and Resh in direct Yahuwah, the way of Yahuwah, symbolize that we're on a journey. We're on a journey together in the faith, through the wilderness, through the hills, and through the valleys. And we know its fulfillment is found in the book of Matthew in the third chapter. I'll read it to you briefly. And in those days came Yochanan Hamatbil, John the Immerser, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, Teshuvah, for the Malchut HaShamayim, the kingdom of heaven, is at hand. For this is he who was spoken by the prophet Yeshiyahu, Hanavi Yeshiyahu, the prophet Isaiah, when he said, The voice of of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahuwah and make straight his paths. Of course, it's Yochanan here who embodies the very voice in the wilderness. He's preparing, of course, the arrival of Yahusha. We know that, but what about Isaiah's audience? Look at verse 6 of our text in Isaiah chapter 40. The voice said, cry, and he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all the toe from it, all the good from it, is as a flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, 
And when the Ruach HaKodesh of Yahuwah blows upon it, it surely the people are but like grass. The grass withers, the flowers fades, but the word of Elohim shall abide and stand, Leolam vi ed, to enable us to get through the difficult times. It's the word that stands. Now, look at the interesting parallel in the book of James, Yaakov chapter 1, verse 10. But the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field, he was, will pass away. The half-brother of Yahusha. Verse 6 then depicts the fleeting nature of our human existence. It's comparing it to grass that withers, that flowers that fade away. They're, they're not going to last very long. Now this imagery right here within the text is emphasizing the temporary and transient aspect of our existence here on this earth. And that is what makes us different from all other creatures of the creation. We reflect upon our temporary transient aspect here in this life. And it is somewhat troubling. Now, Yaakov, James goes on to describe the rich in his humiliation. And the comparison is to the flower in the field that shows that even the prosperous, even the kings of the earth, even the influ influential are subject to the same transience as the grass. It's the great equalizer, is our transient nature. Despite wealth, despite status, life is brief. And all earthly glory is momentary. That's what Yaakov is trying to communicate to his audience. So what's the lesson? It's a spiritual lesson about the impermanence of worldly pursuits, the impermanence of seeking after worldly possessions. It's really an encouragement from the voice in the wilderness, the Ruach HaKodesh, to prioritize our life. We need to have eternal values. We need to seek spiritual richness. We need to remain humble in the face of uncertain times. We need to be humble in the face of uncertain times. We live in those times. We truly do. Look at verse 9. O Zion, Zion, that brings tov tidings, good tidings, get up into the high mountain, O Yerushalayim, that brings tov tidings, Lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say to the cities of Yehuda, see your Elohim. So Isaiah is a call. This chapter is his call to prepare the way of Yahuwah. Wake up, man. It's a wake-up call to spiritual readiness. For us, Preparing for the second coming, the messianic era, the millennium. The call also, more importantly, is an internal call. An invitation to prepare our hearts, making them dwelling places for the Most High. That is the real implication. Yahuwah, of course, within the text, just look at it. 
is depicted as a shepherd who tends his flock. It's interesting, the numerical value of the Hebrew word for shepherd, which is roer, equals 271, and that's the same as the phrase Yahuwah Echad. So what does this point to? This is awesome. The book of John reveals it. This points to the reality of the oneness, the echadness between the shepherd and his flock. The great shepherd, I should say, and his flock. Nachamu. Nachamu. Comfort ye, comfort ye. The word comfort in Hebrew stems from the root nacham, nacham, pointing to not just solace, but a profound change of my heart, a profound change of your heart. Anxiety, fear, chaos, mayhem, uncertainty. When we press into Yahuwah, Nacham, there is a profound change in my heart. Love casts out fear, but fear can also overshadow love. So what must we do? We must love one another. We must love our enemies because then we won't be afraid. We must love Yahuwah with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all, all of our strength. And that will, of course, bring us into that certainty. It's a profound change of heart. The letter Nun, Nun in Nachum, resembles a seed. There's potential for growth, spiritual growth. How? Through being comforted. How do we get comforted? Divine comfort in his word, worship, and prayer. It changes the frequencies, changes the brain chemistry, changes how our body chemistry works. Prepare the way. The term voice harkens all the way back to the voice in the creation. And the letter kof resembles an eye, meaning perceiving, seeing the divine voice in the wonders of the world. What are we grateful for, gratitude, thankful for? The creation. Prepare involves turning or facing. And the letter pay depicts an open mouth emphasizing the active engagement in prayer, in worship, the active engagement required by you and me in preparing the way for Yahweh. We are required as believers to do that. Look at verse 10. See, the master Yahweh will come with a strong hand. And his arm, of course, a metaphor for Yahusha, and his arm shall rule for him. See, his reward is with him and his work before him. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. That's comforting. He shall gather his, uh, his lambs with his arm. More comfort, double repetition. And carry them into his bosom and gently lead those. There are with young. Nachamu, Nachamu. Look at Isaiah and the 11th verse. It's interesting. And he shall feed his flock like a shepherd, and he shall gather the lambs with his arm. The letters here in the Hebrew, Gresh 
and ayin represent keroa, as in shepherd, and the letter bet in the Hebrew word bezaro, his arm, points to his strength and his protection. So I like to look at this too. Look at the Hebrew word for lambs, tel aviv. And it says the letters right here we can see within the lamb resemble a basket because you've got the letters tet and the lamet. Tel aviv, his lambs highlighting what? He's going to gather. He's going to care for us. And of course, we find that fulfillment in John chapter 10, specifically the 11th verse. I'll read it to you. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So Moshiach Yehusha here identifies himself as the shepherd who cares for his flock. The very fulfillment of that specific 11th verse of Isaiah's prophecy. Awesomeness. Now look at verse 12. Who has measured the ma'im, the water, in the hollow of his hand, and meted out the shamayim, the heavens, with the span, and has gathered the dust of the earth in a measure, and has weighed the mountains on scales, and the hills in a balance? This is measuring the waters. This is emphasis. Who can do that? This is emphasizing Yahweh's sovereignty, his control and precision in creation. Heaven with a span? This reflects what? The vastness. This is dominion. Yahweh has dominion. Not the kings of the earth. Not these globalists. Not all these mad hatters running around. No, Yahweh has dominion and his dominion resides within us. The kingdom of heaven is within us if we only engage and activate it through casting out fear through love. Look at verse 13. Who has directed the Ruach of Yahweh, or being his counselor, has taught him? So Isaiah acknowledges the unsearchable wisdom of Yahweh. We're told to forgive our enemies, but how many of us forgive ourselves for the lives that we've lived, for the sins that we have done? At some point, you have to forgive yourself too. You have to move on from your mistakes, and you have to actively engage in the pursuit of Yahuwah. Look at verse 14. With whom did he take counsel? And who instructed him and taught him in the derek of mishpat? I love that word. In the derek of mishpat, in the way of judgment, and taught him da'at, knowledge, and showed him the derek of binah, the way of understanding. So verse 14 is highlighting Yahweh's self-sufficiency. He's self-sufficient, and our sufficiency is found in him alone. We need nothing more. There is all the wisdom, and there is all the understanding to be found. Look at verse 15. See, the nations are but as a drop in a bucket, and are counted as the small dust on the balance. See, he lifts up the coastlands as 
fine dust. So this portrays the insignificance of the nations compared to Yahweh's splendor. Whereas we live in a world where they're trying to cast that the nations are all power, all powerful, and that we just have to submit and that we are just these little peons, you know. No, no, we are the children of Yah. We are the sons and daughters of the Most High, and we are the ones that are going to walk into the kingdom out of this wilderness. Verse 16. And Lebanon, Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beasts of it sufficient for a burnt offering. This speaks to the insufficiency of earthly offerings compared to Yahuwah's glory. So you can see this is a faith-building exercise. This is a faith-building chapter. Verse 17. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him as less than nothing and vain emptiness. This reinforces, again, the idea of the nation's absolute insignificance before Yahweh. He has principalities, malachim, over the nations, and they can only do what he allows them to do. They are under, of course, the heavenly counsel of Yahweh. You see that in the book of Daniel. Verse 18. To whom then will you liken El, or what likeness will you compare to him? So verse 18 challenges any attempt of vain men to compare Yahweh to created things. I mean, listen to the incomparable nature of Yahuwah. Look at the unsearchable wisdom and the absolute insignificance of the nations and the earthly offerings, how insignificant they are too in comparison to his splendor, in comparison to his majesty, in comparison to his greatness. This is the awe-inspiring majesty of the Most High, the Creator Elohim. Verse 19, the workman melts a graven image and the goldsmith covers it with gold and casts silver chains. He that is so poor that he has no gold idol chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks for himself a skilled workman to prepare a graven image that shall not move. Verse 21, have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he that sits upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants of it are as a grasshopper that stretches out the shamayim, the heavens, as a curtain and spreads them out as a tent, a sukkah to live in, that brings rulers to nothing and makes the shof team, the judges of the earth, as vanity. He's over the judges of the earth. Now look, this is interesting, in Romans chapter 1, verse 19, the, the, the comparison. Look how Rab Shaliach Shaul, Rabbi Apostle Paul, echoes verse 21 of our text, 
in Romans chapter 1, verse 19. Because that which is known about Yahuwah is evident within them, for Yahuwah made it evident to them. So Isaiah chapter 40, verse 21, is a rhetorical question emphasizing general revelation, not specific revelation, but general revelation. There is a universal knowledge of Yahuwah that is known to all of his creation, mankind. doesn't matter where you were born. You can just look out at the general revelation and you should know that you were created by the Most High. Isaiah calls attention to the fact that the existence and nature of Yahuwah have been communicated and understood since the foundation of the earth, and man, O oh vain man, is without excuse. Without excuse. I remember people when I was in the Christian church, well, what, if you say that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life, then what about the poor little Buddhist boy who lives in, you know, Tangiers or whatever? It's the wrong continent, wrong town, but you know what I'm saying. Out there in the Far East. Well, there's general revelation that speaks to that. We are all without excuse. Open your eyes, man. Look around. Look around. You feel we came from some primordial soup? Well, that's your fault that you've been brainwashed by the public school system. Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 19. It's harmonizing this idea by driving home the point that knowledge about Yahuwah is plain. It's evident within every single human being. The verse truly drives home the fact that Yahuwah has made his existence and his attributes clear to all people, leaving us without excuse. Man, you have no excuse to deny the Most High and we will all have a day of reckoning. Isaiah speaks to the collective awareness, and it's very sobering, of Yahuwah's existence and understanding. It's always been there from ancient times. While the book of Romans, specifically the first chapter, emphasizes the inherent knowledge of Yahuwah, it's within everybody. Why is it when you start talking about the Bible that sometimes people just shudder and they just, why? Because the light is shining in the darkness, but they love the darkness. And their wicked deeds are exposed by the light because it is evident from the creation and from general revelation that we are to be the worshippers of the Most High. So scripture brings what? and accountability to humanity, and that's why they hate the word of Yah. Scripture brings an accountability to humanity to recognize the reality of Yahweh's existence. The evidence of Yahweh is woven into the very fabrics of creation. It's woven, if you look for it, into the very fabrics of our society. People forget. The King James Version is, the, is woven into the very fabric of our society. They'd like you to not know that, 
into our very language, into the very English language. The evidence of Yahweh is woven into all of his creation and it is discernible through observation, but it is also discernible through introspection. The spiritual lesson is apparent that the awareness of Yahweh is inherent and individuals will be held accountable and are responsible for acknowledging and responding to this knowledge. What's going to be our response? Look at verse 24. Yes, they shall not be planted. Yes, they shall be shall not be sown. Yes, their stock shall not take root in the earth. And he shall also blow upon them, and they shall wither. And the whirlwind shall take them away as stubble. To whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Kadosh one. Now, look at the comparison in the book of John, in the 14th chapter, and the ninth verse. I'll read it to you. Yahushua said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So the 25th verse presents a rhetorical question again. From Yahuwah, emphasizing the incomparable nature of the Kadosh One, the Holy One of Israel. Kind of like he did in the book of Job in the 12th chapter. You see, the question challenges any attempt to liken Yahuwah to something or to someone else. He is unique. He is unmatched in character. He is the Kadosh One of Israel. He is incomparable. There is nothing or no one or anything at all like him. John chapter 14, verse 9, records a very specific statement by his son, Yahushua, asserting a profound connection to our text, a profound connection to the Son and the Father. Yahushua conveys that seeing him is equivalent to seeing the Father, emphasizing the ekadness, the oneness of their nature, and the oneness of their essence. So both verses are about the incomparable nature of Yahuwah. Isaiah addresses Yahuwah's uniqueness directly, while Yochanan, in the book of John, witnesses Yahusha affirming the direct representation of the Father in himself in bodily form. It's awesome. This is about the uniqueness. This is about the direct representation of Yahuwah. In Isaiah, the lesson is about acknowledging the incomparable nature of the Holy One of Israel. But in John, it's highlighting an intimate connection between the Son and the Father. So Isaiah is the witness to what? The divine nature that is revealed in the manifest Son. It's pretty, it's pretty powerful, one would say, if we hear the voice. Look at verse 26. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things that brings out their host by number. 
He calls them all by names, by the greatness of his might, for he is strong in power and no one fails. Why do you say, O Yaakov, and speak, O Israel, my derek, my path is hidden from Yahweh, and Mishpat, judgment, is not issued from my Elohim? Have you not known? Have you not heard that the everlasting Elohim, Yahweh, the created, the creator of the ends of the earth, he faints not, neither is he tired. There is no searching of his binah, his understanding. He gives power to the weary and afflicted. He gives to them that have no might. He increases their strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall stumble and fall. But they that wait upon Yahweh shall renew their strength. This is deeply impacting to me. Because my youth was a youth spent in folly of constantly stumbling and falling over. But I knew from general revelation that there was an Elohim and that I was supposed to be following him, hearing his voice and serving him. But I did not listen. But look at his faithfulness. Look at his faithfulness, verse 30. Even you and me in our youth, when we were faint and we were weary and we were stumbling and falling because of our stiff-neckedness, he waited and he renewed us. He was patient. He's loving kind. He's merciful. He is gracious. He is forgiver of iniquity. And he casts our sins behind his back. He casts our sins behind his back. And then when then we shall mount up with wings like eagles and they shall run, be strong in their faith. They will not no longer be weary. They shall walk and they shall not faint. This is inspirational to a redeemed life. Look at verse 31. Again, if you break up, through some of these Hebrew letters in the 31st verse, you get the letters Yod and the letter Kof, as in the Hebrew word Koye, Koye Yahuwah, those who wait for Yahuwah, Koye Yahuwah, Yod and Kof. It pictures a very, very specific picture, a hand waiting to receive. That's it. Put out your hands and wait to receive. Put your hands together in prayer. Lift your hands up to the Most High and wait and see what you shall receive. Invoke the Most High. The letter Resh in the Hebrew word Yarutsu, Yarutsu, they shall run, resembles a person legging it. Yes, running. And it's interesting because if you were to read Galatians in the sixth chapter and the ninth verse, you find its fulfillment. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So there's the fulfillment of Galatians in Galatians, the sixth chapter, the ninth verse specifically. 
hey, if you wait on Yahweh, as Isaiah describes, and you find strength and renewal, you will find your encouragement within the exile, within the wilderness, within the barren places. Do you? Do you? I do. Right there. Run the race. Finish the race. Fight the fight. Isaiah 40, with its obvious, to us, obviously not to the synagogue of S.A. Tan, but to us, its obvious fulfillment in the New Testament and the life of John, the immerser specifically, is so much more than its historical context, isn't it? Because look, the voice in the wilderness, it resonates within the very atmosphere today. It resonates within our prayers today. It bounces off the word when we read the word today. It resonates in our hearing. It's a resounding invitation to us to prepare, to take comfort and behold the oneness of the divine, divine shepherd. Do you need to be guided through the wilderness? So you don't fall flat on your face. I know I certainly do. I need to be guided through our wilderness. I need to be guided toward redemption. For sure. For certain. See what the Spirit says as the echoes of Isaiah's voice permeate through the ages. And they land right with us today. If we hear his voice. Here in the wilderness of our exile. I love chapter 40. I love it. I'm going to go with that today. There's so much more that you can dig out, but that's a good overview and a good way for you to be able to dig in and bring out more in your own studies. Isaiah, his words jump off the page and they bring comfort to me. I pray they bring comfort to you this Shabbat. Some of you are snowed in. So tuck up warm, get comforted through his word as I've been comforted in his word. And remember, his word changes your mind, changes your very being. Prayer, worship, and the reading of the word refreshes and renews us so that we can come to a higher calling. Shabbat shalom to you all. Please remember... Give us some thumbs up now. You can always donate down below in the description. It's so, so much appreciated. Please prepare the way to the Feast of Yahuwah. We've got Passover coming up. We'd love to have you. We'll be hosting here in Oregon a Passover Seder. We had such a wonderful time last year and so many people came. That will be, of course, according to the calendar that's downloadable, at TorahToTheTribes.com. Subscribe right now to this ministry channel and make sure that you connect through the notifications button and you can always bang on over there and see on Odyssey, everything's backed up. Thank goodness because, you know, we don't want to be just on the Google, do we, in these very strange and perilous times. Blessings to you and to your household. And thank you for taking the time this Sabbath to tune in to Isaiah, the fifth Hebrew gospel.